We're in the book of Daniel. Let's turn to Daniel 4. It's kind of in the middle of the Bible. If you have one like mine, it's found on page 722. Today we're looking at an issue that the church doesn't talk much about, and we should be talking much more about it. It's the issue of pride. How God views pride, what God does to pride, and uh, today we're going to look at a very proud man. Let's uh, stand for the read of God's word. Daniel chapter 4, we're going to begin reading at verse 24. This is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my lord, the king. The king here is uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar has had yet another dream, and he has brought Daniel in again to interpret this dream, and this is the interpretation that Daniel gives. You, Nebuchadnezzar, will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. You will be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times. Seven, remember, is the number of completion. It's also God's number. Seven times. However long that is. But it's the time, the complete time that God has allotted for him. Will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. And heaven, of course, is another word for God in the Bible. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be then that your prosperity will continue And all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of his royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is this not the great Babylon I have built in the royal residence? By my mighty power, for the glory of my majesty. And even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from the people. You will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like an ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives him to anyone he wishes. Immediately what what was said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from the people and he ate grass like an ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. And at the end of that time, I want you to consider something. This is first person Nebuchadnezzar, the words of this proud pagan king. And we have his testimony in the word of God. I, Nebuchadnezzar, At this time, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my sanity was restored. And then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. 
All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, why have you done this? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out. And I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven because everything he does is right. All his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. This is God's word. Be seated. So this is uh, the second dream that that Nebuchadnezzar has. It's the second dream that, that Daniel interprets for him. If you remember the first dream, it's that dream of that statue. And and that statue, all its pieces and parts, represent these world empires uh, that are going to, one after another, uh, lead up to Christ. uh, Babylon and and Greece and and Rome. And and then in that whole vision is this stone, not cut by human hands, that's going to come and smash the statue. And, and the stone in, in that first dream is, is God's temple. It, it's God's house that God is going to once again raise up. And it's going to be such a force that it's going to confront empire. It's going to undo it. Um, God says, as words of prophecy, he says, See, I'm going to lay a stone, a precious cornerstone. And it's this stone not cut by human hands. And we know now... Who that stone is. I mean, that stone is Christ. He said, I'm the temple. I'm the house of God. And he said, the stone the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone and the capstone of God's temple. But I'll tell you one of the most amazing verses. Because all of this is uh, spoken about by, by Peter in 1 Peter 2. Where Peter says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Of course, that stone is Christ, but the verse right before it says, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In other words, what Peter is saying is, and this is exactly what Jesus does, yes, I'm the stone, I'm the house, I'm the temple, but, after, but when he ascended to heaven, he said, all right, the baton's now in your hands. You now are spiritual stones making up God's house, the stone that's, that's sent into the world to undo empires in the kingdom of darkness. Wow, that's a reason to get up and out of bed in the morning. That's what we're part of. And not one amen to that. That's why we move into sex trafficking. That's why we just keep moving into where our world hurts, where, 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 where there's injustice, where there's darkness, because we are God's stone. But that's not the sermon for today, all right? Um, that's the first dream. Uh, now he has another dream. And if you want the content of this, I didn't read it, but look at verses 10, 11, and 12 of chapter 4. These are the visions I saw while lying in bed. Again, this is Nebuchadnezzar talking. He says, I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the earth. Its height was enormous. 
The tree grew large and strong, and its top reached the heavens. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. And under it, the wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in its branches, and every creature there fed itself. Wow. It's quite, I don't know what you're you're picturing, but this dream that Nebuchadnezzar has is, is this great world tree that grows right out of the center of the earth. Its branches reach the heavens. Its, its branches fill the whole earth. And every living creature, including every human being, finds its shade and its sustenance in this tree. If you don't know this, the Bible loves to use imagery, and one of the images that it uses to speak of empires and kingdoms is the imagery of a tree. Even Jesus does this. When he says, yes, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard tree. And I don't have time to get into that, but just fascinating that that's what he chose as the image of the world tree that he was bringing to the world. Um, But like... In Ezekiel 31, uh, this is another place where, where, where the Bible uses this imagery. And here it's talking about the kingdom of Assyria. Ezekiel 31, verse 3, Consider Assyria, once a cedar in Lebanon. A cedar is a great tree, with beautiful branches overshadowing the forest. It towered on high, its top above the thick foliage. Look at verse 6. All the birds of the sky nested in its branches. All the animals of the wild gave birth under its branches. And all the great nations lived in the shade of this great tree. Now that great world tree is Assyria. That great world tree is cut down. By who? God. Why? Because of pride. And, and, and what's the axe that God uses to cut down that great world tree? Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar now replaces that tree and becomes an even greater tree. And this imagery um, where it says that the branches reached the heavens. That clause is first found when speaking of Babel, uh, Babylon, that tower that they built that reached the heavens. Because this is the longing of Babel. It's to build a tower to reach the heavens. Because the ancients understood that a great divorce took place between heaven and earth. Heaven being God's space, earth being our space. And that there's this longing for, for, for us to get back into God's space, back into God. And that's why uh, you have uh, big towers or temples or high mountains um, as these places that, that, that are images of getting back to God, God getting back with us. And see, this is the promise of, of, of Babylon. This is the promise of of the tree that, that is in uh, the Nebuchadnezzar's dream. 
um, that we, look at verse 12, that its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on, its food, on it was food for everybody. Under it, the wild animals found shelter, the birds lived in its branches, and every human being was fed from that tree. We so badly want to get back into Eden. And Eden, too, has this image of, of, of this great world tree, the tree of life. That represents what our world is supposed to be when, when, when God is the great world tree, when his presence is, is intersected in, in, with us and, and we're intersected with him. But see, what Nebuchadnezzar shows us is the age-old problem. It's why Babylon never works. It's why Assyria, why Greece, why Rome, why even Israel, which Psalm 80 also describes as this great tree providing shade for everyone. Why it never works. Throw America in that. It doesn't work for the single reason of human pride. Pride is why the world lost Eden, why it lost heaven, why it lost God. It's because Adam and Eve wanted to do life their way instead of God's way. They wanted to live for their glory instead of God's glory. And this is why the world quickly became Babel. Babel means chaos. It means confusion. Babel is the place where they said, let's build a tower to make a great name for ourselves. We're still building towers. We're still building towers to make names for ourselves, to seek the praise of people. And that's pride. That tower is the tower of human pride. And we today are building towers to our accomplishments. We're building towers... Uh, to the success of our kids. We're building towers to our reputation. We're building towers to, to the people we know and the people we hang around with. We build towers just like they did way back then to, build, to make a name for ourselves. Look at me. Look at my tower. And that's why our world is Babel. It's why our cities are Babel. It's why our schools and Businesses are babble. It's why our government is babble. It's all driven by this love of human praise. This need to make a name for ourselves. See, this is why Babel entices us. Because Babylon promises to build us a tower. That we can build a tower with Babel. And in so doing, win the praise of people. And make a name for ourselves. Here's Nebuchadnezzar. This is Babel's greatest human ever. King of the world. His empire is without peer. Seen by all. He's just built the greatest city the world has seen. Where he's amassed this master race of people. The best of the best. The best artists. The best designers. The best constructors. The best astrologers. The best philosophers. The best CEOs. Creating this explosion of thought and culture. In fact, two of, I don't know if you know this, but two of the ancient wonders of the world uh, flower out of Babylon. First are its walls. 
miles upon miles, going around this great city, where Herodotus, the historian, says that they could literally host chariot races on top of them. They were so massive. But the wonder, I think, of the ancient world, the hanging gardens, Nebuchadnezzar himself is the one who really built these, and and, and scholars think it was less of just like in the city, this small little impressive structure, but that the hanging gardens themselves were the whole city, turning this, this city urban environment into that of a garden, a park. It's beautiful, stunning. Uh, The Ishtar Gate, one of eight gates going into Babylon, which now is housed in the Berlin Museum. On every brick of this massive, beautiful gate is inscribed Nebuchadnezzar II. And that doesn't just apply to this gate, but that applies to every official building in Babylon on every brick. Nebuchadnezzar inscribes his name. Look at verse 30 of our, of our text. He says, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as my royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Now this is the context of Nebuchadnezzar's dream of this great world tree. And, and in this dream, this tree is cut down, and its stump is laid to lie in an open field. So Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, and he sends for Daniel. Daniel, by now, is probably his right-hand man, his chief advisor. Um, when Daniel hears the dream, it's like Daniel turns ghost white. In verses 20 to 26, Daniel gives the interpretation and he essentially says to Nebuchadnezzar, he says, you, O king, are this great tree. This tree is the tree of your pride and God is about to cut you down to show you that you are not master of the universe, that God is, and that you're just like every other human being, a weak, lowly, dependent, desperate creature. Do you know that today? Are you desperate? Do you see yourself as lowly? In verses 29 to 33, Babel's greatest human being is cut down. God takes it all away. He takes away his position. He takes away his palace, his empire, even his own sanity to the point where he's wandering around in the fields, in the open fields, eating grass like an ox. His body is being covered by the dew of of the earth. His hair and his nails grow so long like that of an animal. He's become beastly. In Proverbs 16, verse 18. I mean, there's text after text where we can speak about pride. But this one uh, speaks so to this situation and to all pride. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. 
God will always humble the exalted. He will humiliate the proud. As, as, as two plus two equals four. Pride will always, always produce a train wreck. Always. So what is pride? Well, I think it's that verse I read, verse 30. You have this guy on top of his palace, looking at his kingdom, saying, Is not this the Babylon that I have built? By my hands? For my glory? That's what pride is. Pride, pride says it's all about me. It's, it, it's by me. It's for me. It, it, it's by my power and for my glory. It's by my hard work and the resources that I bring to the table for my fame. That's what pride, pride is. And here's one of the things that I've noticed, one of the characteristics of, of, of proud people. And I don't want you to think that I, I'm... <laughs> not putting myself in the bucket of being prideful when I talk this way. I can talk this way because I know it from my own heart. But proud people have this deep sense of oldness that everyone owes them, that God owes them, that life owes them, that their parents owe them, that government owes them, that their employer owes them. And, and, and then when good things come into their life, they just think, yep, I deserve this. I absolutely deserve this. I'm owed all of this. What are we owed? What does life owe us? What does God owe us? What do you think you really deserve? A right to be happy and comfortable in the pursuit of happiness? Really? Is that in the Bible? I mean, you you, you look at the humble, and, and, and a humble person looks at everything in life as a gift. They think everything that I have, everything that I am, is simply because God is so good and he's so gracious. And when good things come into the humble's life, it's like they're so flattered by it. They can't hardly believe it. Like, really? I don't deserve this. And therefore, for them, every day is like Christmas. They're just grateful joyful. Thank you, God. Whether they're rich or poor, whether they're kings or whether they're slaves, are you grateful? What have you thanked God for today? What have you been like, yes, God, you're so good. I'll tell you, 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 you can especially see who the humble and proud are when, when things are taken away. I think of Job's wife when, when, when they lost so much. I mean, they lost practically everything. Job's wife says, curse God and die. 
No one deserves this. And Job says, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be his name. That's humility. Caravaggio, this uh, great uh, artist from the Renaissance, painted this painting that I want to show you. I don't know if you can see it. It's kind of brighter here today than it is tonight. But basically what you have is uh, this person who is looking into a clear pool of water. And if you look closely, he's looking at his image. Does anybody know who this person is that uh, is in this picture? It's Narcissus. This is a picture of Narcissus. He can't stop looking at himself. You want a definition of pride? Look at us. Keep that up there the rest of the sermon. We can't stop looking at ourselves. We can't. And now we have technology that we can constantly like take pictures of ourselves so we can look at ourselves and look at ourselves. In fact, we call these things selfies and we're not even just like trapped just at looking at ourselves, but we have the technology now to post this, to blog this, to send it to everybody else. And basically what we're sending is, hey, I'm looking at myself. I'm that. Our culture's that. We become that. C.S. Lewis said, Pride is ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on the self. Think about how much time we spend thinking about ourselves, expressing ourselves, promoting ourselves, explaining ourselves, justifying ourselves, pampering ourselves, pleasuring ourselves, beating ourselves up, shaming ourselves. We're full of ourselves. And I'll tell you what I just described. You know what narcissist is wading into? The waters of hell. Roger Williams, one of C.S. Lewis's really good friends, wrote a book, The Descent into Hell. And his premise is that when we descend into ourselves too far, where we get stuck inside of ourselves, we are now wading into the waters of hell itself. And see, when we start to also understand pride is self-absorption, this excessive concentration on self, it, 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 it means then that pride isn't just thinking that I'm better than, that I'm better than people. Um, it, it doesn't mean just this exalted state that, that we see ourselves in because people who also think of themselves as inferior are just as self-absorbed as people who think of themselves as superior. They're, they're just more self-conscious and dealing with self-deprecating and self-loathing kind of selfishness, but it's still self. And see, that's why many of us just think of humility 
of, of, of just thinking less of ourselves to just go around thinking that I'm no good and I'm not this and I'm not that, but it's still I, 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 I. It's like C.S. Lewis also says, he says, true humility is not thinking less about yourself, but thinking about yourself a whole lot less. Or as Tim Keller uh, puts it, in fact, he has a wonderful book on this, on C.S. Lewis's understanding of of what true humility is. He says, true humility is self-forgetfulness. It's where we stop thinking about ourselves altogether. Do you know today the freedom of being free from yourself? Free from always having to look at yourself, evaluate yourself, compare yourself, measure yourself, think about yourself. Free from taking yourself so seriously. When's the last time you just like laughed at yourself? This is why the Bible gives us the most life-giving, freeing statement when, he says, when it says the way to life is, is we have to die to ourselves. Die! Kill it! Not feed it. Kill it. I mean, think about poor narcissist. He's stuck inside of himself. He has to experience life's worst bondage of of constantly having to feed himself, prop himself up, make himself look good, medicate himself when he's feeling pain. Um, He has to beat himself up when he fails. He has to console himself when someone criticizes him. He has to take this fragile self and always try to make it strong. He has to always talk to himself to just put him in the right state of mind. The joy, think about the joy of the self-forgetful life and the freedom. I mean, all pride does is breathe death and destruction. It just literally, it, it, it sucks the oxygen and the joy right out of life. In fact, it's in our text. We didn't read it. It's at the beginning in verses 4 and 5. And these things are connected. They are connected in our life as well. But verse 4 says, Nebuchadnezzar was at home. He says, I was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. And all of us like, Think, oh, how could we have that? And I don't even need a palace, but just give me a nice home where I can be content and prosperous. But the next verse describes how Nebuchadnezzar is sleepless, restless, and terrified. Because those two things go together. Lewis is right. Pride is ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling, concentration on the self. Pride produces this restlessness, this sleeplessness. Proud people are deeply troubled people. I mean, what the Nebuchadnezzars of the world should teach us is that you can build the biggest towers, you can live in the biggest palace, you can be the master of your own Uh, universe, you can even pour all the empires of the world into your soul and it's still not be enough because the human soul craves for something even greater than that. 
And this reminds me of another king, uh, a king in, in, in our text, King Solomon, who actually did this experiment where he poured into his soul everything he could get his hands on, and he describes it. He pours money, he pours sex, he pours power and prosperity into his own soul. In fact, this is the gospel that America preaches to us every day, doesn't it? Grab all the things you can get from life. Grab all the money, all the sex, all the power, all the prosperity you can get because it will satisfy. And yet Solomon, who indulged in all these things, whose life was all about indulging and winning and achieving and making it to the top for what? Solomon says, all of it just made my soul that much more profoundly in a state of despair. A vanity of vanities. A chasing after the wind. When are we going to listen to God? When are we stop listening to our world? I mean, God talks about the utter foolishness of pride. One of the places, Romans 1.21, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile. Their foolish hearts were darkened, and although they claimed to be so wise, they became fools. Fools. We have to see the foolishness of pride. And we have to know that God humbles the exalted and he exalts the humble. And in a single hour, he can humble a Nebuchadnezzar. He can humble a marriage. He can humble a family. He can humble a business. He can humble a church. He can humble a city. He can humble a nation in a single hour. And he will. Because he hates pride. He detests it. He will cut that tree down. In fact, in Isaiah 14, it describes the ruin of Nebuchadnezzar. And it uses the imagery of the ruin of Satan. Satan's ruin. To speak of the ruin of Nebuchadnezzar. Listen, listen to, to, to how Isaiah 14 puts this. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You've been cast down to earth. You who once laid low the nations, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high God. But you are brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. And why does the text use the ruin of Satan to speak of the ruin of Nebuchadnezzar? Because pride is satanic. It's the complete antithesis to who God is. And I could show you text after text to point this out, but I have to take you no further than Jesus. Who came to the world to reveal the face of the Father and and the heart of God. If you want to know 
who God is and what God is like, just look at Jesus. Listen to this description of Jesus from Philippians 2. Jesus, being in the very nature, God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Actually, he says not to be hung on to. He, He let go of it. But rather, Jesus made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a slave, being made, in, made like a human being and being found in the appearance as a man. Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Lay that king next to King Nebuchadnezzar. One a mere mortal seeking to be God. The other very God himself seeking to be a slave. One bringing glory to himself. The other giving up all his glory to bring glory to his God and glory to us. One exalted high on his palace. Your life for me. The other exalted high on a cross. My life for you. The text says, have that mind and that heart, Christian. The heart of Christ. God opposes the proud. The reason he opposes the proud, because God is humble. He, he detests pride. He hates it. And we need to know with God, it's, it's, it's not that all the good people are in and all the bad people are out. With God, it's the humble are in, the proud are out. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He says, unless you humble yourself like a little child, you'll never be a part of my kingdom. You proud? Are you too proud to admit you're proud? This is one of the great dangers of pride. We can see pride a thousand miles away in other people. We can't see it in our own selves. It's not the way it is with other sins. No one who's committing adultery is like, oh, wait a second. You're not my wife. They know what they're doing. When you steal, you know you're stealing. When, when you're angry, you, you, you know it's wrong for you to be angry. When you're bitter, when you're jealous, you, you, you know it. But pride, we can't see it. We can't detect it. But here's the good news, and I want to end with this, because as much as God hates pride, and as much in the end as he is going to destroy the proud, he's going to cut them down like he cuts down Nebuchadnezzar, we still live in this this season of grace where God is going to send to us like he does proud Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel's dreams, messengers. And here's Nebuchadnezzar, this guy that you could, if we saw him today, we'd think there's no way this guy could ever be humbled. If this guy can be humbled, anyone can be humbled. Daniel 4.33 says, Immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from the people. He ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like that of the claws of a bird. God takes it all away. God undresses him of everything. 
his empire, his throne, his majesty, his palace, his fame. He's even undressed of his, his reason and his mind. He's made to grovel around like, like an ox, eating the grass like a cow. He, he, he's looking like a beastly creature. The way his nails and his hair are growing, he is utterly humiliated. And we can sit here and look and say, why does God do things like that? This is the only chance Nebuchadnezzar ever has of coming to know the God of the universe. And we can't even know ourselves without knowing him. And we can't even begin to be humble while we're set free of ourselves and our pride unless we know him. And Nebuchadnezzar comes to this point. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, towards God. And my sanity was restored, and I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the peoples of earth are regarded as nothing. He does what he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand and say to him, Why have you done this to me? Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right. All his ways are just. And all those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. How far does God have to go to to break you of your pride? Remember Naaman? That proud man, just like Nebuchadnezzar, God has to undress him. He has to undress him of all his worldly accomplishments, his uniform, his medals, his achievements, all his pomp and and, and glory till he's just reduced to his spots, his leprosy, which really is a reflection of a greater leprosy, the leprous heart that he has. It's so full of pride. But seven times, just like with Nebuchadnezzar, seven times, seven times, uh, this proud man is willing to humble himself, humiliate himself, be exposed and wash himself of his pride. And let me end with this, because this is where we have to be very careful not to apply religion to our pride. And this is what I mean by religion. Religion is where it's all about me. Where, where, where it's me trying to make me better. Where it's me obeying God and praying more and fasting and giving to the poor. It's still me, me, me. Like somehow this will help me with my pride. And all these things might work with other sins, but the problem is they actually work against pride. Because they only start to make us more proud because it's still all about us, making us into wonderful Pharisees. And the thing that God most detests is spiritual pride. That's why what we need to apply to our prideful hearts is the gospel. Because the gospel is this great tree, this world tree that God puts in the ground and he places his king. And it's through that exaltation through humiliation that his kingdom breaks in and breaks out. And this tree 
speaks to me. It screams to me. It says, Rod, you're that wicked. You're that messed up that the God of the universe had to go to that length to deliver and to rescue you. It kills pride. There's no room for pride. But at the same time that it humiliates me, it exalts me because the one who's worth all the praise looks at me and says, you're worth it. I love you that much. I delight in you that much. And that sets me free of needing to prove myself and justify myself and promote myself and exalt myself because he exalts me. He justifies me. He proves my worth, not me. It's not about me. It's all about him. And what I said earlier, the human soul wants something more than anything this world can offer. What our human soul craves is Christ, Jesus. And here's the deal. When we come to him and we take him in, we have to come to him in the same way he comes to us. He doesn't come to us in all his majesty, but all his humility. He comes to us poor, which means we don't come to him. Just look at me, Jesus, and why I'm so worthy. We come to him poor in the way he comes to us, humble in the way he comes to us. About a month ago, I was serving communion right over here. I saw this grown, accomplished man, crumpled, just crumpled in the corner, weeping, bawling. My first thought was, you're too accomplished for that. My next thought was, God must just be smiling so big. He doesn't do pride. He does that. He does a crumpled man, broken, humbled, humiliated. Let's pray. God, open the eyes of our heart to see your humility. When Jesus came to the world, he truly introduced the world to humility and what it is. God, may we repent of our pride. May we take hold of the cross, the great world tree that you have put in the center of the world. May we come to that tree the way you come to us on that tree. Naked, vulnerable, poor, low. Humble yourselves before him. 
and declare to your world how great our God is. Have a great week, you guys.